Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you, back with Randall Carlson as we talk about ancient cataclysms that could happen now. Randall, you were talking about the Great Flood, I believe. Yeah, that's kind of where we left it. We had just talked about um, how Adam Sedgwick had been traveling around England and seeing deposits that he initially believed to be uh, the result of Noah's flood. Um, He later, though, about a decade later, he did change his mind and came to believe that, that the flood deposits were actually more local or regional rather than a global flood. Um, but he was one of the founding fathers of, of uh, he, he never, by the way, he never did necessarily um, abandon his, his uh, lens of catastrophism <clears throat> that he looked at the, at the look, uh, by which he looked at global change. Then there was Roderick Murchison. He was also about contemporary with, with Adam Sedgwick. He was a catastrophist. We say a catastrophist because they believed that there were great sweeping catastrophes in the history of the earth. Um, Georges Cuvier, um, considered to be the founder of, of paleontology, he was a catastrophist. And that was mainly because of his studies of the fossil record, because he would find that there were, you know, places in the rock where there was abundant fossils preserved, and then an overlying rock was just almost totally barren in fossils. So he would, well, what happened here? Why did these fossils disappear? Were they concerned it would happen again? Uh, well... I don't necessarily think that they thought that it would happen again in their lifetimes. Um, I think that they were, you know, they were more concerned with the uh, interpreting uh, events of the past. And so they were putting it in that framework. And I don't know, maybe Sedgwick being a theologian, maybe he had apocalyptic ideas that there was going to be another global catastrophe. I'm not sure about that. But what happened was, they all, a lot of these guys initially looked at this evidence, thought that it was great floods. Then you had, well, Louis Agassiz was the, the basically is considered the, the godfather of, of glacier studies. And he came along and showed that a lot of the things that they were looking at that they thought were flood deposits were actually glacial deposits. And he came to America post-Civil War and helped to establish this idea of recognizing glacially created landscapes. Um, So what then happened was they kind of, geology, you see, at this point is not an academic discipline. It's not being uh, taught as such in universities. That didn't come until the 1890s and into the early 20th centuries, where geology actually became a scholastic discipline with dogmas. See, once those dogmas got entrenched, the dogmas replaced the, the, the uh, ideas of catastrophe mm-hmm. with the ideas of uniformity. And this came along with um, primarily James Hutton and Charles Lyell and Charles Darwin. Because Oh, Darwin was involved in this too, huh? Well, yes, because Darwin originally had looked at a lot of the evidence uh, when he was uh, you know, traveling in the Beagle, tr- determined that there had to have been great sweeping catastrophes to explain the evidence that he was looking at, but in the end, he abandoned the idea because it was just too extreme for him. But think about Darwinism. It's basically based upon the idea of slow, gradual, accumulated, incremental changes. And that's exactly the uniformity idea of geology. And so once 
they got away from the idea of a young Earth, a 6,000-year-old Earth, and began to uh, admit or recognize that the Earth was, you know, actually millions of years old. Well, now it's like, okay, well, the features that are in the, that we observe in the Earth now, they could be created over many, many millions of years, and we don't need to compress these events um, into a very short span of time. How about billions of years, Randall? Well, even billions of years. But, of course, they're not thinking billions of years yet in the 19th century. They're, they're just thinking. They're not. Okay. They're still thinking millions. Um, I think it was uh, um, Lord Kelvin that, that did some studies in radioactivity, came up, I think it was around 70 million years. So then that became um, part of the, uh, uh, of the dogma for a while. But then as we get into the 20th century, you know, then... Yeah, we've moved certainly into billions of years now, I think 4.6 billion years. But they kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater because once um, geology became established as an academic discipline, um, uniformity, gradualism became the dominant paradigm. And anything outside of that was looked upon with disfavor because oh, you're trying to bring back in biblical literalism, you're trying to bring back Noah's flood, et cetera, et cetera. So we don't need that anymore. So fast forward a couple of decades to the 1920s. You now have a geologist by the name of J. Harlan Bretz who is studying landscapes up in eastern Washington. And all the evidence that he's amassing and looking at leads him to believe that there was these gigantic floods that swept over uh, eastern Washington. When he proposed some of these ideas in the uh, mainstream literature, scientific literature of the 1920s, he was attacked mercilessly by the defenders of gradualism because they basically said, you're trying to take us back to biblical literalism. We don't need giant floods to explain the landscapes or the the rock layers, the, the, the stratigraphy. We don't need that. So he encountered a great deal of resistance to these ideas, but he stuck to it for about 20, 25 years, kept amassing more and more data that just made a overwhelmingly convincing case that these huge floods had swept across eastern Washington. And it was gradually accepted, but not really fully accepted by the geological community until the 1960s. Um, at that point, one of the uh, principal critics of J. Harlan Bretz was actually persuaded to come out in the field for a week, which he had never done. And he he came out, spent a week in the field, looking at the evidence before his eyes in the landscape. And at the end of that week, he was standing in front of a feature called uh, Potholes, uh, no, Palouse Falls in southeastern Washington, um, where there is this gigantic horseshoe-shaped cataract with a little trickle of water, which is the modern Palouse River, Mm -hmm. and the accumulated effect of this week of looking at day after day, this this mega-scale evidence, he finally comes back to the group after standing, looking at this one particular feature for for many minutes, comes walking back and he says, how could I have been so wrong? And that was a beginning of the turning point, and just like what happened in the 1980s when it was accepted that the, that, that an extraterrestrial impact had had actually occurred. That was a turning point. With J. Harlan Bretz in the 20s and the 30s, that became a turning point, although it, it didn't really manifest until the 60s. And then you had a new generation of geologists coming up in the 1970s and 1980s 
that we're now willing to accept the idea that, yes, these are these giant floods that occurred. Now, what's the explanation? And the original objections to the flood theories in the 20s and 30s of Harlan Bretz was, well, you can't explain a source of water so great, therefore there were no floods like you're talking about. So that kind of became the, the, the modus operandi uh, by the 60s and 70s was the effort to explain what could have caused floods. And we're talking about floods that were measured in hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second. Are these like biblical floods, Randall? Well, I, I could call them biblical-scale floods from this standpoint. Anyone who managed to survive one by some sheer luck of the draw could easily, easily believe that the entire world had been destroyed. Of course, especially in your location. That's all you saw and knew. Now, not biblical in the in the simple-minded sense that the whole world is supernaturally drowned with water all the way top, brought, to the top of the brought on brought on by God to exterminate the population at the time. Right, but like you just said, uh, George, you could a survivor could could and and for generations, descendants uh, might grow up, live, die, and not know that there were other people in the world. Because if you're talking about an area, let's say, the size of several states that's completely wiped out... Yeah, and that's all they knew. That's all they knew. You got, Yes, that's exactly right. So we've come a long way since then, because now what, what has happened is these, as they're called, the channel scab lands are the erosional features in south, southern, in eastern Washington. The, generally, the name given to the flood is the Missoula floods because they they emanated from a series of deep basins within the Rocky Mountains of western Montana and the Bitterroot Mountains. Are these the mega floods that you've talked about? These are the mega floods that I've talked about, although we now know that there are evidence for mega floods all over the earth. Exactly. Not, not a single flood necessarily. I'm not talking about that. But mega floods that would be 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 measured in tens to hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second, and these are phenomenal. Well, consider uh, where Spokane, Washington, is. The flow right through that area was estimated to be between 700 and 800 million cubic feet per second. Now, the largest known measured flood in North America was the Great uh, Flood, uh, Mississippi, of 1993. That topped out at about 1.2. I was there in St. Louis. Okay, so you know that. I that saw flood. that. You saw that. Now, try to imagine that flood times seven or eight hundred times as big. Oh my God, huge! That's the scale we're talking about here. George. I mean, buildings were underwater. It was that high. It was that high. Well, there are places in um, Washington, in actually in the Panhandle of Idaho, right there. Um, where the Clark Fork River, if anybody wants to look on maps, the Clark Fork River comes out of uh, western Montana, dumps into Lake Ponderay. In that valley, the water was 2,100 feet deep. Yeah, that's like an ocean. That's, yeah, that's like an ocean. And in fact, the, the, the unit Jeez. of measure that the geologists and the paleohydrologists used to talk about these floods is the Sverdrup, which is actually developed by oceanographers to talk about um, the great ocean currents like the Gulf Stream. And it's basically a million cubic meters per second. 
So so they talk about spur drops. And one of the, like this flood there by, by Spokane, if you took, George, every, to, to get another sense of the, the scale of thing, if you took every river on earth, and you start thinking about that in North America, South America, Africa, Europe, Asia, every single river on earth, and added those flows together, you're still only one-tenth to one-twentieth the size of these maximum flows that occurred. So to me, the question of the cause of the floods, see, the, the geological community has kind of closed around this idea of an ice dam. Um, I reject that idea for many reasons, and I think that the cause of the floods is actually accelerated melting of the great ice sheets, which was J. Harlan Bretz's original idea, but which he abandoned because everybody attacked him for that and said, you can't explain how you're going to get that much melting that fast. And when would that melting have occurred? This would have occurred roughly between somewhere, the dates are usually putting it at between twelve and 14,000 years ago. Now, the Younger Dryas is a rapid cooling period. That was around then, too, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Good connection. What came it. first? The, well, it appears. Now, here, here's where it gets a little complicated. It appears that there were three great melting events <clears throat> that ultimately brought down the ice sheets. And, you know, those ice sheets that we're talking about, if you took all of the South Polar Ice Sheet and all of the Greenland Ice Sheet and put over Upper North America, it still wouldn't be as much ice as, as reached from the Atlantic to the Pacific and from the northern United States up into Canada, uh, to the Arctic Circle. was maybe as much as two miles thick in the area of Hudson. Oh, they'd, they'd cover skyscrapers, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely cover skyscrapers. You know, what's the, some of the tallest buildings on Earth are, are, what, a couple of thousand? No, not even that. I think the tallest building in Atlanta here is about 1,200 feet high. Jeez. So, yeah, um, I don't know. What's the, the new World Trade Center building? That's, what, 17, that's 1,776 feet high, right? So you're, if, this, if this building was in that Clark Fork River Valley of northern Idaho, there would still be 400 feet of water over the top of it. So, the issue, and, the, and the, by the way, the tallest building's twenty seven hundred feet in Abu Dhabi or okay, Dubai. So Dubai twenty seven hundred feet. So you would have had six hundred feet of the upper the upper six hundred feet of that building then would be above water. But of course, this is water that's moving fifty or sixty miles an hour. So that building wouldn't last. It would knock it, it would, down, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, it would totally knock it down, wash it away, and obliterate it utterly. Are you concerned that this could happen again to us? Well, that wouldn't necessarily happen because we don't have the great buildup. You know, we don't have six million cubic miles of ice. No, not yet anyway. Not yet. Now, I believe that we have to look at an extraterrestrial factor here to to explain what happened. Well, on this program, when you say extraterrestrial, you better clarify yourself. Yes. By that, I mean probably an for My first... First and foremost, to be the impact of, of an asteroid or a comet, or in the case of the Younger Dryas, now that has abundant evidence um, accumulating that it was a cosmic impact, it looks like to have been a disintegrating comet that the Earth encountered around 12,900 years ago, give, a, give or take a, a half a century. And 
so that's what I mean by extraterrestrial. I don't necessarily mean UFOs in this case. Uh, as a secondary possibility, I would look at the sun and maybe hyperactive solar activity. The thing is, the Younger Dryas boundary is now showing impact proxies in abundance. What that means is you're finding um, microspherals and magnetic grains and iridium spike has been found um, in the Greenland ice cores dating to 12,900 years ago, a platinum spike, an osmium spike. These are all platinum group elements uh, that, again, are delivered to Earth via uh, meteorites, asteroids, and comets. And, yeah, there's an abundant uh, amount of evidence that suggests that Earth had some kind of a cosmic encounter. Now, the thing is, is that there was apparently three great melting episodes that were required to mostly get rid of the ice sheets. The, the earliest one, in, unless there are um, adjustments to the radiocarbon dating, the earliest one looks like it was at 14,600 years ago. Well, that's, was, you know, really in times of Earth time, that's not much. No, that's not much at all. And, and what makes that significant is because throughout all this time, we modern humans and our ancestors were here on Earth living through this stuff. About 15 generations. Yeah, that's probably about right. Yeah. So then you have this event at 12,900 that apparently caused a lot of melting plus global wildfires, and then that was followed by the 1,300-year rapid cooling that you mentioned is called the Younger Dryas. And then when the Younger Dryas ended at 11,600 years ago, there was another warming spike associated with very rapid melting of the ice sheet. What causes that warming spike? They didn't have factories and cars then. No, that's, yeah, well, you're, you just hit, the, that's the question. That's the $64,000 question, George, right there. Yep. What caused it? And, and, and I don't know, but that's what I've been obsessively researching, and I'm working with some very interesting people who are also researching that very same Are you question. getting close to an answer? I think we're closer now than we were a decade ago, certainly. Um, however, the more we look at this, this span of time, the more complicated it gets. So, uh, you know, one of the things that's come out recently with a lot of the solar observations that have been going on since the 90s is the sun is much more active than um, previously assumed. Precisely. And yeah, that, and, and, and a lot of this information about hyperactive sun is not getting into the you know the computer models of, of climate change that we're constantly being barraged with listen to more coast to coast am every weeknight at 1 a.m eastern and go to coast to coast for more